Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. I think I, f I feel like I should say a special word of hello to all of our friends listening at home who may be afraid of a virus that we're talking about. Um, but I'm glad to see you all here in the flesh so that we can continue our study. First, before we get rolling, I want to make sure we are all very clear. If you've got your bookmark, you know next week is spring break. No class. All right. March 18th, a week from now, we are not having a class. Are we going to have a class next week? No. no. Good. I will see you in two weeks. I always feel bad. You know, some person is going to stroll up all ready for Bible study, an empty chapel. It's going to be sad. So tell your friends, right? Is it going to be you? Okay. Um, no class next week. So let's start with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, in this time of increased anxiety, we ask that your calming presence be upon us. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to stay focused on you as our guide and our North Star, that no matter what this world says we should be concerned about, we hear your words repeated over and over throughout Scripture, be not afraid. May we be faithful to you. May we be wise to care for ourselves, but to not let fear be in control. We ask your healing touch to be upon our friends who cannot be with us today and those who need it most. And keep us ever mindful of those in our community who feel isolated or alone, that we may be your hands and feet to reach out to them in love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a few questions that came from last week, which I will get to, but <clears throat> a quick reminder. Come on down. We've got a few spaces up here, too. Um, Madeline doesn't bite. Neither does Debbie. Come on down. Um, <laughs> we've got these little charts that we handed out last week. This is the effectively the family tree, the kids, wives and children of Jacob, so that we're able to kind of keep things straight. And as we proceed this will be a little bit more and more helpful, right? This is going to be helpful as we go into the story of Joseph, when Joseph gets sold and he gets to Egypt and all that stuff. Knowing where people's relationships may be, I think will help us all. So if you didn't get one of these last week, we have extras at both doors, so grab one on your way out. And if you have not signed up yet for our email thread, let us know because we will send an email next week confirming that we are not having class next week so that no one shows up here on their own. So a few questions. <clears throat> one was kind of a reiteration of last year, I mean of last week, um, but it was a question that says, it seems to imply in scripture that even though Jacob married Leah first, there's this phrase after a week, Jacob talks to Laban again, and then it almost seems to imply that maybe he went ahead and married Rachel, but then he had to work off the marriage, so to speak. It is unclear. Um, it, the way that I read it is that the implication is not that a week after marrying Leah, Jacob married Rachel too and just had to work seven years to earn that, but instead Jacob worked seven years again to then marry Rachel. The issue, however, that is brought up in this question is, wouldn't that make 
Rachel almost a little too old to actually then begin to have these struggles with being barren to then bear children later and all the other stuff. We kind of talked about that last week. Yes, there is for sure a concern about age. And so imagine that Leah's the oldest, right? Rachel's the youngest. And we said that when Rachel came to the well upon Jacob's arrival, Rachel really could have been very young. I mean, 12, 13, 14, something like that. She did not start off as a 28-year-old, you know, in this whole story. So assuming that Rachel was about early teen, then by the time Leah marries Jacob, she could easily be about 30, right? Maybe 27, late 20s. So by the time she marries Jacob, at the youngest, she's probably in her early to mid-30s. That is still totally doable. You can have babies in their mid-30s, of course. But it is true that that would be, A, unusual, right? Most women are going to be married off much earlier than their mid-30s at this time because life expectancy just isn't what it is now. However, in this story, is it plausible that she would have gotten married in her mid-30s then gone forward a number of years to then have babies in even her early 40s? Sure. I mean, biologically speaking, of course. It would have been unusual. And so I want to acknowledge that it would have been strange and still totally possible. Does that feel okay? Any follow-up question to that? Is your question how long is a year? Okay. Um, so, no, it's not the same calendar we would use now because this is well before our 12-month cycle would have been established. However, these are people who are very linked to the land, very yoked to the way seasons function. And so even though they may not have had the identity of weeks, months, hours, stuff like we do, one year would still be about one year. I mean, maybe not to the day like we do it, but they know when crops need to go in the ground and when they are harvested and when they need to be to, I mean, that kind of stuff. They know when their flocks need to take shelter because weather cools versus gets hot and that sort of stuff. So the identity or the concept of one year is still likely stable. We have no reason to think that a year today would have not been about a year back then. However, seven years, May not, in, may not be literally seven years. Seven is a sacred number. And so oftentimes the way that Jewish storytellers work, well, I mean, gosh, almost any storyteller, is numbers are not meant to be like balance sheet accurate. They're really meant to indicate a long time. So in other words, this author may have been telling a story to, to really say, Jacob worked a long time before he married Leah. Then he worked a long time again before he married Rachel. Could seven years have really been like three? Sure, because three years, that's still a long time. But biologically speaking, could it have been actual seven years? Yes, I mean, that still would work um, in the sense that Rachel would have been young enough to have been able to bear children. It's a good question. So the question is, why is there such a tension or 
anxiety or whatever around Rachel's fertility when, you know, just two generations earlier, and they would have certainly been told that story, Sarah was well beyond childbearing years when she had Isaac. So I think we could answer that in a few ways. One way is there's still people and people get anxious. I mean, excuse me, look at what's going on right now, right? With all due sensitivity, most of what we're hearing about the coronavirus is emotional and sensational. Very little data is driving most stories that people are sharing and believing and worrying about. We're human. And so even though the data of Rachel, of, I'm sorry, Sarah's age would have likely been known and told, they're still human. Humans are sort of made to worry about something. And so, you know, I mean, most of the time, most of the people I know perceive silence as concern. You know, I happen to be one of those people who, when, if I hear nothing from you, I'm assuming good things, right? But that's me. Most people don't. Most people perceive that silence as something wrong. And so just our natural way of being is that we're going to be concerned or worry. And so I think it's more of a state of humanity than some kind of sense of lack of trust in God. I think if you were to say to Jacob, okay, interesting. What do I want to say? In today's chapters, we are going to see that a few things happen. Jacob is not the paragon of faith. He really has a lot to learn. Two, Rachel does not understand God the way that perhaps Abraham and Sarah did. And therefore, she's not perhaps faithful, so to speak, that God could do it anyway. And so I think for the two of them put them together, and whatever they think may have happened to Sarah, I could imagine that they're just not people who believe that stuff. Not yet. Maybe they don't ever, but at least at this point in the story, that's not the way they do it. Now then, you know, good scholars, we would say they didn't write this story, and you'd be right. However, in the arc of Genesis, one of the ways to understand Genesis to Exodus, Genesis gets us to a reality of God that is a bit more, say, normal, where God is not talking to us in this literal sense, right? In Genesis, we get, at the very beginning, God's touching everything and breathing into and doing all of that stuff. Then in the garden, God is literally walking around and talking. You know, he's kind of like peeking out behind the tree and saying, hey, Adam and Eve, where are you, right? I mean, it is this very fully personified understanding of God. With each successive generational story, God seems to take one step back. So God's touching, then walking, then talking, then being heard, then, you know, so there's these kinds of continued step backs. So from a literary structure, God is effectively getting to where God is in Exodus, which is Moses is a prophet. Moses hears from God, but the people don't hear from God. 
the people hear about God through Moses. That's a bit more normal for us because we tend not to perceive God as a tangible conversation partner. I mean, yes, some of us feel God leaning us, leading us towards something. Maybe we hear God's voice in kind of in our heart or mind, but I don't think any of us would say like, you have literally heard a voice and had a conversation with God. And although I guess I think that's possible, I don't know. Um, I also think that I would be suspect of someone who says it like that. Um, we are corporate Christians. <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting off the rails now. Um, in the Reformation, there was a big shift away from corporate Christian faith to individual Christian faith. And that became, that really got the gas in the U.S. If you think about early post-colonialism in the U.S. was just the most fertile ground for what became tent revivals, right? We had multiple Great Awakenings. We had preachers that rode around on horseback all the way to crazy people who are healing, healing, you know, like Benny Hinn style. Um, or what I would argue is a much more faithful but still very individual-focused person like a Billy Graham, right? Where their revivals were all about your individual faith, right? You need to be saved individually. Now, all of us individually saved people may want to go to church together and sing together and pray together. That's fine, but it is all about you as a person. And there is something so very egocentric about that that I think has effectively— I read this most brilliant paper— about how the decline of religious identity in this country or in Western Christianity can be directly tied to the shift in the Reformation to individual salvation. And it was wild because I think they're right. I mean, when we became so concerned about individual salvation— everything about the way we experience religion becomes individual. And so then you fast forward to, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, so <laughs> things like Northern Italy right now. My concept of Christianity and church is that when the going gets hardest, that's when church is absolutely necessary. And what has happened in Northern Italy with this fear of viral stuff has gone from a very genuine, rational fear of vulnerable populations getting sick and dying, that's a real thing, to we close church because we're afraid of dying? I mean, the wicked irony that we aren't going to go to church because we're afraid we might die, what? Y'all, like that is, that is 180 degrees the wrong way to be people of faith. That does not mean that we make stupid decisions that put ourselves at obvious risk if we don't have to. But as you saw in my letter last week, we do this together, which means if you 
need to stay home because you feel unsafe or you feel especially vulnerable, then you, it is okay. But we, as a church, we gather and we pray and we worship and we give thanks because that's what we do. And, my friends, if that means we have a slightly higher risk of dying, we do that. That is what we do. And how comfortable and self-centered and convenient-focused has church become that we think we don't do this just because there is some relatively normal viral strain out there? That's not okay. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> get preachy. Um, but I do think that didn't even answer your question. Sorry, Kristen. Okay, so I'm not going to even ask for follow-up to that. Um, the other question, just to address real quickly, and we can do this quickly. There was a question about the portrayal of both women and firstborns that these stories seem to do two things pretty consistently in their looping. Women are portrayed as weaker or problematic or the source of problems, and firstborn children, sons, really, are portrayed as never being the right people to do the job. Um, what I will say to the second about firstborn sons, that is a that has been understood over time as a narrative technique that, theologically speaking, is really meant for us to feel empowered that nothing is predetermined. You may not be what the world says should be the important one, the one who has the power, the one who inherits, the one who on and on and on. But God's going to use you anyway, because God's economy is not the world's economy. So that's an easy one. The portrayal of women, the question really is, is that more, a, more an indication of the way that the Jewish culture in exile perceived women than perhaps the reality of the stories themselves, which is 100% true? Of course it is, right? Stories often say more about the storyteller than they do about the characters in the stories, for sure. And so never, never find yourself kind of off in the ditch of why did Jacob say that to Rachel? It, don't worry about that. Know what Jacob said to Rachel or something like that. And then put that back on the storytellers and to say, what is it that they were working on here? Why were they so concerned or perhaps even so accidentally portraying women as the root of these problems? That says a lot more about the storytellers than the story themselves. Okay, so I have taken up too much time, and now let's get to Genesis 31-33. Four sections to this passage. Um, effectively, in the biggest sense, Jacob's coming home. That is what happens in these three chapters. So Jacob has gone over to Laban, found his wives, had some kids. He's now going home. He's going back to where his father and his grandfather's people are. What is interesting about this is we, along the way, get these moments where we are differentiating ourselves from the big worldly family and reuniting with what should be kind of the faith family. And let me say that a different way. 
beginning with Isaac, it was very clear that their desire for their sons to marry the right women meant kind of within the tribe, so to speak. So Abraham finds a wife for Isaac in the tribe, but someone who lived back in the old country. Same thing happens with Jacob. He goes back to the old country again, finds wives, but is now coming over. And as he travels, multiple points along the story in these three chapters will expose that even though those people in the old country are part of the same worldly tribe, the tribe really has split and is differentiating itself. And the people over who are Abraham's people are now markedly different in their identity than the people who stayed in Ur. And that's really important for us to understand. Abraham, we're going to start off by saying, remembering that Abraham was faithful to God and he left. Even though his blood relatives are still there and they matter, those blood relatives did not go with Abraham. And so they have not understood what God is doing in this very particular way, the way that Abraham and his descendants are trying to understand God. Does that make sense? Um, we're going to see this play out in a few moments. So, first off, we begin chapter 31. Jacob is still with Laban. Jacob has effectively worked off, however long, both Leah and Rachel. So now he's got four wives-ish. He's kind of got two primary wives and two secondary wives, and who knows if there are more wives, but this is the way the story is told. Jacob's kind of done, and it's time to go home, but Jacob has, because of of acquiring Laban's two daughters become quite powerful, quite wealthy. And we immediately see that Laban's other kids do not like Jacob because of this. So let's look at chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. He has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him as favorably as he did before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred, and I will be with you. We'll pause there. So Jacob is feeling no longer welcome. He was welcome with open arms when he showed up, because he kind of showed up empty-handed. Not totally empty, but mostly. Over the course of this 14-ish, 15 years, he has slowly carved away so much of what was Laban's property, wealth, um, profits, you name it, that he's become at least as strong as Laban. And now Laban's sons have less to inherit, and they don't like it. And so Jacob understands that he's probably about overstayed his welcome, and it's time to go. And so Jacob hears the voice of God. God says, time to get back home, and I'm going to be with you on the way. But Jacob is still a little wimp. And so rather than being honorable and actually saying goodbye properly, Jacob waits until Laban goes off to shear the sheep, which apparently takes a while, and gathers all his stuff up, including Rachel and Leah, kids and everything, and hits the road. Three days later, after Laban just was totally absorbed with sheep shearing, he finds out that Jacob and the others have gone, and he is really angry. 
it's characterized as he being angry that effectively he didn't get to say goodbye, but it's not just that. Look at chapter 31, verse 22. 31, 22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he took his kinsfolk with him and pursued him for seven days until he caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Take heed that you say not a word to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsfolk camped in the hill country of Gilead. So Laban, we'll pause there, Laban has gone off to chase Jacob, but Laban can travel lighter, right? So Jacob got a head start, three days at least, but uh, Jacob's got all the herds and the children and the stuff because Jacob's not coming back. Laban effectively just kind of saddles up the horses and takes off, right? So he's traveling much faster. It takes seven days, but he ultimately catches Jacob. Hey, psst, what's this sound like? Who gets a head start but travels heavier and someone catches up to them? Thank you, Moses and Pharaoh. Okay, so we get this loop that's, that will sound very similar to what's going to happen in Egypt, right? Where Moses and all the people leave, but they travel much slower than Pharaoh and his chariots. And so even though they get a head start, Pharaoh catches up to them, okay? So this same kind of loop. So Laban shows up, and Laban is told that he's got to leave Jacob alone, effectively, right? God has said, leave Jacob alone. But what God? Take a look at chapter 31, verses 30. Right, so skip ahead a few. Verse 30. Laban says to Jacob, Even though you had to go because you longed greatly for your father's house, why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. But anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsfolk, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. All right, so we're going to pause here for a few minutes. Jacob flees, does not say goodbye. Laban is angry. He kind of wants to say goodbye to what his daughters and his grandchildren, right? Just imagine what has happened. These aren't just characters, they're people. So Laban's two daughters marries this guy. They start to have kids. They've been living together for years. What grandparent would not be super mad that all of a sudden, boom, all of them are gone. He doesn't even get to say goodbye. But there's more to this than just saying goodbye. Rachel took the family gods. Right. Let's talk about what that means. In Hebrew, the, this word here for family gods is teraphim. So teraph, teraphim, whatever you want to say. Let me write it up here. It's like tera, almost like the earth. Teraphim. Teraphim are idols. These are literally statues. In the ancient world, families often had some kind of chapel set up in their home. How many of you know, today this would look like a Hindu family. If you've got any friends who are Hindu, Hindu families almost always have a small space in their house Maybe it's a little walk-in closet kind of size. It's not usually gigantic, but it's set apart in some way 
where there's a little almost chapel, almost like a little praydu, which is like a little kneeler. And there would be some candles and there would be some pictures. Um, you may have seen this. Um, Shint Shinto or even Buddhists do the same kind of thing where it, it's remembering family members who have died, but it's more than that. It is about a family god. In Hinduism, and we've talked about this in here, you've got a three levels of reality where everything is God, yes, but then our experience of God is unique because we are unique, and there are particular expressions of God that make most sense to who we are as individuals or as families, and so they become effectively family gods. This is similar, not the same, to old-world Christians, Catholics and Orthodox, who may have family, favorite family saints, right? And if you know kind of Catholics from the old country, there are oftentimes Catholics who will have kind of a favorite saint, a family saint. They, they would never say those words, but there may be a saint frame picture in a hallway or a wall or the entryway or something like that, because for some reason back in some point, that saint became a thing. And they pray to that saint. And how I've always described saints to non-Catholics is in the way that you would ask a friend to pray for you when times are tough, you would ask a saint to pray for you. So it's not worship of the saint as an idol. It's more so a particular facet of what is holy, being identified as something important to who you are or perhaps what you need at this moment. In the ancient world, People did not live in neighborhoods. They did not really have established church buildings or meeting sites. Typically, families or tribes would kind of worship together. And so a household would have a place that was set aside as sacred. And at this point, we know that Laban, which means Abraham's ancestors, would have had family saints, literal statues that would have been set up in some way. Now, why did Rachel take these gods? I think the answer is relatively easy. Jacob's not exactly the paragon of faith. It is entirely possible that Jacob didn't really understand what was going on with Yahweh and Abraham and all of that stuff, even though he may have known the stories. So he didn't really impress upon Rachel or Leah or their others this identity of how God is not the way they understand God, and instead kind of loosey-goosey did whatever and probably prayed to the same gods that Laban and his household prayed to. And if Rachel's leaving the home forever, doesn't it kind of make sense that Rachel may sort of subtly take those gods with her so that she can keep praying once she's no longer at home? Makes sense to me. And so she's done this as a thief. Jacob in this moment says to Laban, listen, I, I don't really care about your gods, which I think reveals not some kind of clarity of faith about Yahweh, but actually probably means that Jacob sort of doesn't care. And so he says to Laban, whatever, I mean, go search the stuff and find your gods and take them with you, whatever. And so Laban goes and searches, searches. Jacob also says, whoever you find who's stolen your gods, eff effectively I'll execute them because as a show of my faith to you, Laban. So in a sense, what Jacob is saying is, hey, you know, I, we didn't do anything wrong, but if somebody here did, I'll take responsibility, I'll punish them, 
So you know that my relationship with you, Laban, is still strong and valuable to me. But what Jacob didn't realize is that Rachel had him. So let's, interestingly, and we didn't, we didn't read this part, a few verses later, Laban goes and searches the tents and searches the bags and searches all this other stuff. What he doesn't search is Rachel because she says to her father, the way of the woman is upon me. What a great phrase. I mean, I remember when I was growing up in high school that if a girl ever wanted to get out of class for some reason, if she had a male teacher, it was so easy. Because she would just say, I need to go to the bathroom, like, I need to go. And the men would be like, you got it, whatever, go ahead, you know. I mean, it was, it was so helpful. Um, so Rachel, in a sense, is kind of pulling that same card, like, hey, Dad, I can't stand up. Like, you got me? And her dad's like, yep, got it, okay, just fine. Rachel has hidden these idols literally under her. So effectively, she has place them in the bags that she's sitting on and listen dad i can't stand up like hey dad you don't want me to stand up right now right is really what she's saying and he goes okay i hear you just fine and so she gets away with this because the way of the woman is upon her do you know i love that um i remember there was a woman i thought was wonderful um that i worked with at church in uh, in the past where she would always if she had to use the restroom she would say she needed to step aside and I love that. I think there's something so elegant, right? She would just say, you know, I need to step aside. And I thought, oh, that's just, it's lovely. And so there's a little poetry here. So effectively, they, they, Laban never finds these idols. Laban goes home. He and Jacob are kind of all right. Okay. Any questions about Jacob fleeing? I've got to hurry up. All right. Number two, appeasing Esau is relatively easy. So jump to chapter 32, verse 3. 32-3. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now, and I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves— and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. We'll stop there. Jacob wants to pay Esau off. Jacob has gotten wealthy. And think of Jacob's memory of Esau. Jacob fled from Esau's anger because he had swindled his way into becoming the heir, receiving the blessing, getting everything that would have been their father's. So in his mind... Esau's not doing well, right? Esau was, you know, kind of dumb and probably didn't, wouldn't be able to figure out how to earn stuff on his own. And so Jacob, Jacob is presuming that Esau's not in a good place. And Jacob wants to buy off Esau's welcome. Because remember, Esau, Jacob may be as smart as he wants to be, as wealthy as he wants to be, Esau can still kick his butt, right? Because Esau is the big one. And so Jacob just doesn't want Esau to kill him. And so he figures Esau doesn't have much, so I can buy him off. 
and basically get him out of the way so I can return triumphantly to both inherit and add to and really become wealthier than either Isaac or Abraham had been. What this says about Jacob is sort of disappointing, right? Take all of this together, and Jacob's character is just not impressive or attractive. Jacob flees from Laban without being honorable to say goodbye. Jacob, in essence, has not shared anything about his identity or the promises that he has inherited from God to influence even his own wives enough to create a vision for what could be. So Rachel steals the idols out from underneath her father's nose because she obviously doesn't know what else there could be. And then here Jacob approaches Esau with effectively this disrespectful kind of ugliness. Like Esau would be cheap enough to sell himself again to Jacob. So Jacob does not seem to see people very well, um, especially does not seem to see Esau very well. Let's keep going. Verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking, If Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the company that is left will escape. We'll pause there. What a chicken. So, <laughs> Jacob is so afraid of Esau that he has not seen, he cannot see anything plainly. He's making assumptions, right? Of course Esau should be mad at Jacob, still angry, still holding a grudge, still wanting to kill him, because what? Jacob would, right? It's the same thing about how a story tells more about the storyteller. The way Jacob is treating Esau says a lot more about Jacob. Jacob would have felt all of these ways. And so if Esau's coming out with 400 men, then what's he doing? Of course he's coming to totally sack him and kill him, because Jacob would. And so Jacob does what I guess is strategic. He says, let's split in half. They won't attack both, which means if they attack the one, at least I'll get away with half my stuff. That's where we are, and we're going to effectively pause that storyline and insert Jacob wrestling with God. So hold any questions or issues about Jacob and Esau, because we're going to have a little pause here. It's, we're going to have like a little sandwich moment. Now we're in the middle of the sandwich. Turn to verse 24. Jacob has separated his two groups in half. Jacob has taken his immediate family across the river to create some kind of helpful barrier to keep them safe. And this is where we get verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. So Jacob encounters someone that he does not know, and he wrestles with him all through the night. And the hip socket kind of moment shows that this is a very physically taxing kind of wrestling. In the morning, they begin to have a conversation I would have thought they would have had in the first few minutes of their wrestling, which is, hey, what's your name? Like, who are you? Um, but apparently they never got around to that. So ultimately, Jacob discovers or believes that he's been wrestling with God and that God has blessed him, and that God has changed his name. So, we know, of course, Israel. But as I've told you before, E-L, Ale, is God. So it's actually is, Isra, I'm sorry, Isra, Ale. That is what Israel is. The Ale is God. And the Isra effectively means contends with, fights with, wrestles with. So the inter interesting thing here is that the story says, your name will be Israel, for you've striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. But what Israel actually literally means is that God wrestles with God. That is actually how you break this word down. What I find very interesting about that, oftentimes we... I think wonder in one way or the other why God messes with us because we're imperfect and we are messy and we tend to get things wrong most of the time. God, I think, is wrestling with God about us because we are so messy. It makes great sense to me that God is I'm not conflicted, that's a little strong, but that God is always trying his best to treat us fairly, lovingly, strongly, you name it, so that we can get better. We have already shown that Jacob, up to this point, is very flawed. His character is not what I would wish my own children to do. And so God, in essence, comes to wrestle with Jacob to get him to be better, right? The way I perceive this moment is that Jacob needs to be better than he is being. Jacob needs to make better choices. Jacob needs to be more faithful and on and on and on. And God is there to almost shake him into being something better, being who he should be or who he, who he was created to be. And it's represented that God himself is conflicted about this because we've seen that the storytellers believe God can just do whatever, right? Destroy Sodom, cause a flood, create a thing. Whatever. God's not limited unless God limits himself. And this, my interpretation of the wrestling is that God does limit himself, but for our good. That, to me, dovetails directly into the identity of Jesus. 
Why Jesus? Jesus coming is messy. Jesus dying is messy. And I've always believed, and I think it's, it's fine to believe, that Jesus' incarnation, his active public ministry, was at least made it potentially possible that he would not need to die. And I think that Christianity and its theological desiring has almost made the cross a predetermined inevitability. I don't like that. I think that the cross did what it did, yes, but that there was at least some amount of hopefulness on God's part that Jesus's presence would actually sway hearts and minds and begin to realize the kingdom the way God had always hoped so that perhaps Jesus didn't have to go through such a grisly passion. But it didn't work that way. People did not hear him. People's hearts were hardened. And so Jesus's death did become the necessary way to create the bridge for each one of us in our imperfection. That's a nuanced understanding, but I think it's consistent with God showing up and wrestling Jacob to try and get him to be better, to try to get him to respond the way that he should. That's all I have. <laughs> That's a great question. Do we all have that hip socket moment? Um, I would say I sure hope you do, um, because if we don't if we don't struggle with God, I don't think we care. And that's the concern. Because if we don't, if we don't own our own messiness, then we actually don't care enough to get any better, to become more faithful. Not a one of us could wrestle with God and not have that joint thrown out of place, right? It's God, people. And so I think if we don't have the bruises and the limps and the banged up experience with God, we're not trying hard enough because we in our own imperfection can never quite achieve the full vision of what God hopes for us. In comes Jesus. That's the point. Jesus completes us. Jesus actually finishes what we cannot on our own finish. Jesus makes us whole in order to be with God forever. That's the whole idea. And of course, it can, we can parse that out in lots of different fancy theological ways. But effectively, there's a gap. There's always at least some gap between us and who God made us to be or who we are in that full sense of holy, and that's the gap that Jesus fills. Some of our gaps are bigger than others. I think that we all are on some kind of spectrum, and we are moving closer or farther away from God. <laughs> so on that spectrum, and, and I don't think we are— the reason why I have always taken such great, um, offense is not the right word, such a strong stance against this idea of once saved forever is because we are always a work in progress. And there is always a moment when we 
make a choice. And that is a critically important moment when we own it. And that can be in some traditions, baptism or confirmation or whatever that is. We have to, as a conscious person, come to a moment where we decide. But that's the first of countless decision points in the course of our life where we choose again and again and again, or we don't. And we can absolutely slide way away from God. But grace is not on us. Grace comes from God, period. And I've always liked the idea, um, the, sort of the tagline, and we use it at my um, former church, God loves you, no exceptions. That's grace. Nothing can stop that. Nothing we do. But we have choices to make. We are still responsible for who we strive to be, knowing we will always fail in some level, and that's the gap that Jesus fills. Okay, I want to make sure I finish this. So, Jacob wrestles with God. There you go. Let's jump into the final section. Somebody's really trying to get a hold of somebody. Um, if you can't hear it, your phone is ringing. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 33. We're going to look at verse 1. Oh, got it. Okay. It's at least it's a lovely ringtone. So, it could be an annoying ringtone. That would have been worse. Chapter 33, verse 1. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front. Did you just hear that? Okay. <laughs> then Leah and her children, with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Such a good moment because Jacob lays all of his stupidity out for everyone to see, literally lining up least favorite kids to most favorite kids. I mean, oh my gosh, like, how does that feel, right? You know, all of a sudden, I mean, if you didn't know, you knew then, right? I mean, if you're like Reuben and you were thought, well, dad doesn't really have a favorite. Oh, want to make a bet? Joseph is back there, you know? I mean, in the order of death, Joseph's in the back. So it's just, it's horrible how Jacob just, it's like he can't even help himself. Jacob just is such this train wreck of a person. And then here comes Esau, who has every reason to be angry, who is the one who, like, without any pretense— just falls all over Jacob in love. It is such a beautiful moment to show that here is the person that God has chosen who is so imperfect, so imperfect. And here's the person who has done all the dumb stuff, who the world thinks is imperfect, but who has done something so very holy right? He, Esau is so over it. Whatever has happened while Jacob has been gone, Esau has not harbored a grudge. Esau has just moved on. 
there's something beautiful about Esau in his worldly failure where he gets to be this sacred success in this moment, right? Jacob has been a worldly success, but he is so spiritually depraved that Esau shows him up. This is, for us, I, there are a few more things I would say, but I don't have time. I want to offer, in the last couple of minutes, that for people like us, and I'm just going to make a gross generalization, so just bear with me. When we succeed the way the world thinks we should, we can very easily become Jacob's. When you don't, it's so much more easy to be Esau's. And I have seen it over and over and over again. The more you have, the more you want. The more you want, the more you think you lack. And the more you think you lack, the more you think God does not love you, that people don't love you, that everything is, everyone's out to get you. In a sense, we should read this few verses, this moment, as a major warning for us that Jacob has done everything the world says is good and has achieved and has succeeded and looks so much better than Esau. And in this moment, Esau's simplicity in putting love ahead of everything else makes him so much better than Jacob. It is very easy for us when we have a lot to get so backwards that we can't even see how backwards we are that we defend how backwards we are, and that our prioritization and our fears of losing what we have prevent us from ever being able to genuinely wrestle with God and wrestle with who we should be. When you have too much to lose, you don't get the chance to have your hip socket put out of joint because you're too afraid to even start the fight. Esau had nothing. And look at what he has become. He has become the good guy in this story. He's become the one who bears witness to what God likely wishes Jacob were. That should be something that we do not toss off lightly. Because every one of us in this room is very easily sliding toward a Jacob rather than an Esau in our own way. And if you want to tell me you're not, then I want to invite you to maybe wrestle a little bit more with God. Oh my gosh, the same can be said about every person, including Esau, right? Make no mistake. I am not lifting up Esau as some kind of paragon of everything we should be. But in this moment, with this choice, Man, Esau got it right, and Jacob got it so wrong. And the world would look upon the two of them and say, Jacob had a lot more than Esau. But when we look upon this with God's, God's lenses, man, I would much rather be Esau right now than Jacob. Thank you all. No meeting next week. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.